Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Today, we are offering you a very special bonus episode. This is part one. That's right, we split into two. It was too big. This is part one of David's conversation with Rachel Lazar. Rachel Lazar is the president and CEO of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. She's read the book, she's got some thoughts, and she has very informed opinions. If you are going to pick anyone to talk to about this stuff, Lazar is the right person. So, really good conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you'll join us next week for part two. This is Kingdom Ethics. Uh, hey, everybody. So excited uh, to introduce you to my dear friend, Rachel Lazar, uh, who I have known for 15 years and who is with us in our office in Atlanta today talking about defending democracy from its Christian enemies. Rachel is president and CEO of Americans United for Separation of Church and State based in Washington. And you've been there how many years? Five and a half years. What did you do before that? So before that, I spent two and a half years being an educator on white privilege, which sort of came out of my heart from the 2015 episode of sort of killings of black people being brought to light for the first time for many of us, Mm -hmm. Um, unjust killings by police often. Um, And before that, I was the um, head of the culture program at Third Way when I met you, which is a centrist democratic think tank in Washington. I guess between that, I was the deputy director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. I remember uh, visiting you in your office there in uh, in Washington, the Rack. I think it was That's called, right. right? Is it still up and running? Yeah, oh, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Who, who's the director of that? Joan, Rabbi Jonah Pesner, okay. a great guy. And Rabbi David Saperstein was the founder of the Rack. That's right. He's still over there, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, we could do a lot of reminiscing today. Uh, <laughs> we um, first got to know each other through the work with Third Way. Mm-hmm. And um, so 15 years is a long time in Washington. It's mm-hmm. a long time in life. But... Uh, but now, here we are in a very different era. I mean, 2008, well, in some ways, it feels like 2008 was the beginning of the era that we're in right now, I think, because, and that maybe gets us warmed up for our mm-hmm. our conversation, because I think that a big part of the story of what I'm calling authoritarian, reactionary Christianity, and our readers, our hearers would already know about this because we've already talked about it in sequence. Am I right, Jeremy? Um, Jeremy's here, by the way. He's being very quiet. Say something to our audience, Jeremy. Hello, friends. Glad to be in the room today. Uh, Jeremy uh, would would know about authoritarian reactionary Christianity, and so would our hearers. Uh, but I, I think that the white conservative Christian, quote mark, freak out over the election of Barack Obama is in some ways a way to talk about the beginning of our story. Um it certainly is indispensable for understanding the MAGA movement and the election of Trump and the appeal of Trump. Um, but it, that may be getting ahead of our story. So I asked Rachel, um, well, let me, let me, let me uh, pause and just say, I asked you to read this book in light of your current role as head of Americans United. So tell our our listeners about what you do there, what the mission of the organization is, 
and um, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So Americans United for Separation of Church and State has been around for 76 years. And every day we bring together religious and non-religious Americans to fight in the courts, in Congress, across state legislatures, and in the public square for everyone's right to live as themselves and believe as they choose. Um, And I am the first non-Christian leader of the group, I'm Jewish, and the first female leader of the group, and I've been there, as you said, for five and a half years. Um, And we are growing every day in a time such as this, Mm -hmm. but still relatively dwarfed by this billion-dollar shadow network that we're fighting every day that has the force of fear of loss of power behind it, and that has in many ways uh, created outsized power for itself across state legislatures, in Congress, and of course at the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're fighting. Um, so why do you think I asked you to read this book uh, in your in the, the role that you are currently in? How did it land for you sitting in the chair that you sit in most days in Washington? I mean, it landed great. It was <laughs> affirming of what we see and battle every day. And it's always so uh, reassuring and important to see Christian leaders arguing um, to a Christian audience for the need to fight back against this, what you're calling ARC, right? Authoritarian reaction, reactionary Christianity, since so much of it is being driven today by Christians. And I mean, one question that I want to talk about with you in our time together is this question that always plagues me, which is how much of this is sort of a political agenda being disguised in Christianity and how much of this can we really say is Christianity? Um, and, and that, you know, is it Christianity just sort of among some of the leadership and then the rank and file is being sold down the river? Is it true Christianity now because theology has changed for mm. the rank and file? Or is it really kind of what we kind of can confidently say is more a political movement that's being covered with Christianity? I think that um, it would be different for different people who might generally fit in this bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, the the analysis, and let me know what you think about this, is um, the movement is a movement of negative reaction to pluralism, to loss of Christian dominance in the public square. I think you can, if you want to talk about the modern U.S. movement, I think you can, if one wanted to pick a date, trace it to the uh, prayer in schools decision of 1962. Mm-hmm. Um but it's everything that happened in the 60s. I, I talk to people and say, okay, play, you know, play with this uh, popcorn. Okay, everything that happened in the 60s that marked social change. Boom, 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 boom. Everything. It's the feminist movement. It's, it's the um, prayer in schools decision. It's the civil rights movement. It's, it's immigration. It's, femini- it's feminism. It's the sexual revolution, gay rights movement. It's all of it. And so it's a negative reaction to all of that. Um. And a, an authoritarian pushback. Um, 
and at the heart of that is a certain kind of Christian vision. And I don't, I mean, somebody put on Facebook, or I think over the weekend, don't call them Christians. These are not Christians. These are just conservative reactionaries. I think that's too simple. They believe themselves to be Christians, most of them. They believe that they are pursuing a Christian social political agenda that fits with the Bible or tradition, Christian tradition. Um, they believe they're fighting for the will of God against the will of the godless. Um, their churches and pastors and Sunday school teachers routinely reinforce this agenda from the pulpit and from the classroom. Um, and there are many recognizably similar movements in other countries and in the past, as I talk about in the book, that did the same thing. So I do, there is the chapter on Germany in the book, I, I wonder what you mm -hmm. think about that chapter, where, where I, I talk about, there is a version of this um, that you can see in different countries and that you could see in Germany in the late 19th, early 20th century that was more ethno-Germanity mm -hmm with a little, like get a little paintbrush of veneer and put some Christian language on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that is true, there's some of that in the US setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's also good-hearted Christian folk who really believe that this is God's will. Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I think your book completely hit home about what the reality is that we're fighting today. I think this movement in reaction to change you know i think the what i like to talk about is in one generation white christians in this country have declined by 40 percent that's a huge number now christians have declined by 20 percent but white christians have declined by 40 percent and I, you know i wrote i write myself a column in our church and state magazine every month and i I wrote this piece about like my own struggle about what to call this. You know, you're you're coining this new term ARC, right? Authoritarian mm -hmm. Reactionary Christianity. I'm trying to go with the acronym here. ARC, way um, to go. See, on. I want it to stick, right? Oh. <laughs> um so you know, and I and I appreciate it in the book where you talked about the way it's sort of bending the art backwards. Yeah. Um so that 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 was sticky for me, David. I want it so, to be sticky. <laughs> that was good. Jeremy, look, it's sticky. That was it's good. working. It's, it's working. working. Okay, it's good, working. good. Yeah. <laughs> Bend the arc of history backwards. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think that, you know, that's that's true. I I tried to kind of, in my own struggle for what to call this, when I was sort of naming that I, I do think it's also white Christian nationalism, and I was talking about where my struggle was coming from. Yeah. I wanted to tell you about it. Yeah. Um, so I start by saying, in part my struggles, because I'm a lawyer and very precise, and what we're seeing in this country is certainly um, Christian, but of course, you know, being Jewish, I mean, I see it uh, parallel to it in the Orthodox Jewish community. Not right. all Orthodox Jews, by right. the way, are homogeneous, but I see some of the same mm -hmm. um, ideology and um, sort of uh, battles being fought in that community. So it's not quite just that it's Christian. Right. Um, and, 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 and I also talked in my article about my empathy for 
how hard it can be to change. And I talked about it from the standpoint of a Jewish parent of three kids. And I Mm. started thinking about, you know, what it would be like for my kids to marry non-Jews. And, you know, as as we were discussing earlier right now, two of them are dating non-Jews. So I think, and they're, you know, they're they're 20s. So I think it's likely that some of my kids are going to marry non-Jews. And I thought about it from the perspective of, what can and, and again and I'm fine with it. I I think love leads actually, you know. But the the feeling of loss that can come from thinking about your offspring, mm-hmm. you know, your grandchildren or whatever, maybe not sharing your same family traditions mm-hmm. someday, or not sharing a set of beliefs that you have. That's that's sort of a big deal, and I think it's fair to feel a sense of loss there. And I was letting myself have empathy for a lot of Christian families whose kids are no longer Christian and what that mm-hmm. must feel like. I think that's a big deal. It is. And I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's talked about and I'm not sure that in my community it's talked about ever with empathy. Yeah. Um and I think it's real and I think it's human to to feel fear and loss from that. And yeah. I want it but then in my my article, my column, I moved on to the white part of it. Mm-hmm. Um and there it's like you got to get with the program. I mean, to sort of feel this loss of power based on nothing more than the color of your skin. Um, right. I, that, Hard that, to feel an empathy for that. No. You know, and there it's like, well, you have two choices there as as white Christians. You can either, you know, kind of lean into that, right, which is anti-democratic, um, you know, I would argue, but again, I'm, I'm Jewish. Jesus was a Jew, but, you know, anti-Jesus, like I'll just say. But again, it's not really for me to probably say that. Um, I'll, I'll say it. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> or you can um, embrace church-state separation as really the antidote to what we're seeing right now, which is like the buffer against um, our country losing itself and losing its democracy. Yeah. Let's let's um, lean into that sense of grief and loss for mm-hmm. a second. Um, so I have three kids, and uh, like you, my kids are grown. And um, one is a church going uh, somewhere in the evangelical, post-evangelical space. Uh, one is just beginning to go back to church tentatively, and one is on principle committed to never ever going to church. And that third child, uh, it's, it's a conviction that Christianity is, is bad for women. Mm. And so it's a feminist commitment among other things, but that's a big part of it. Um, what's interesting about, about, what I'm seeing, Sina, and uh, probably a lot of listeners would know that I'm out and about in the post-evangelical spaces. We talked about this at lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, with a lot of 30, 20, 30, and young 40-something leaders who a lot of them are deeply alienated from their parents who are in this world, the ARC world, you might say. <coughs> um, so here's the paradox. These... Just to just to to paint the picture with with full uh, uh, caricature, these like Fox News on on TV all day long, uh, got a Trump poster in the living room, 
and MAGA hats, and you're going to vote for Trump even if he's been convicted of 91 felonies. Um, these folks uh, add a little anti-LGBT in there, add anti-science, add whatever. Okay, put it all in there. They've already lost their children. They've lost their 30-something children, a lot of them, because of the version of Christianity that they have come to develop, that they've come to embody. I meet people all over the country, and their, their story is like, well, yeah, my dad has a life-size poster of Trump up in our living room, and, um, and I say, Dad, could you put that away when we come home or whatever? No. Or my dad was marching on the Capitol on January 6th. What am I supposed to do now? Right? Um, they've already lost their children. Wow. And they know they've lost their children. And if they've lost their children, almost certainly they've lost their grandchildren because their grandchildren are going to be raised by their children who they've already lost. Mm-hmm. So this decline of 40% of white Christians, that's a big deal. And the, by the way, the, the fact that there are non-white Christians who are still out there going strong, it kind of doesn't even register in this like white enclave world, right? Okay, so the, the Christianity that matters in the subculture is white Christianity. Okay, so that's what's been lost. Um, so there's the big cultural changes, but there's also it's family by family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, but the version of Christianity or of politics or both that they are attracted to in response to the fear of losing their children and grandchildren. And by the way, as you know, in the rhetoric, they're trying, they're coming after your children. They're trying to convince your children to self-mutilate. That's the anti-trans language, right? And they're trying to, to steal your children's soul with CRT in schools um, and stuff like that, they've already lost their children. And, but they, and they didn't lose their children because of what some liberal educator said. They lost their children because, in most cases, because of the distorted version of Christianity that they were practicing. And the children didn't, didn't want anything to do with it. Um, uh, last weekend, I was at the Embracing the Journey Unconditional Conference. I met with hundreds of parents of LGBTQ kids for whom traditional Christianity, traditionalist Christianity, anti-gay Christianity gave them no resources when their child came out. And so when they responded to their child coming out with anger and judgment, a lot of them lost their kids then. Like whose fault is that? Um, I do think it's, it's, it's helpful to to identify that paradox. I, I do. I, w- I want to respond to it, yeah. if I may. Yeah. Um, did you want to say something? I do have a thought. Yeah, please. One of the themes in the ARC conversation is one of despair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is an experience for a lot of these parents that's a part of that reactionary energy is the despair about that because they're scared of crumbling families. And their family is crumbling. And I, I want to know if you've heard this sort of rhetoric. I think it came from Dobson in the 90s that your kids are like the proof of your testimony. Oh, yeah. That you're, mm. you know you're mm. right, both like you're correct and you're right with God because of how your kids turn out. Right. And so mm-hmm. your child departing from even your version of Christianity is a threat on your identity and your salvation, your role in the church, your spot in the kingdom. Yeah. Mm. Uh, There's, in fact, there's biblical 
warrants for that, you know, like in the qualifications for a bishop and a deacon, mm-hmm. you know, uh, children are, you know, godly and disciplined and all of that. And so if your children don't turn out the way you, you think they were supposed to, then maybe it looks bad for you. Right. And you were supposed to train up a child in the way they should go and, and it, they wouldn't depart from it. So but. maybe you're the one who's responsible for that. Despair is an important theme for me. Yeah. Despair for sure. I was going to say something else also as a, as a mom. And, you know, one of my favorite things in life is being a mom for sure. Um, In fact, remember when you wrote me an email about today and you talked about mom day instead of Monday. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, that's appropriate. Mom day is a good Um, day. Every day is mom day Uh for me. Um, But, but one of my favorite realizations as a parent, um, I talk about this with, with some other moms who I know is um, sometimes, you know, you're doing your best parenting when, you're with your kids and they're saying something and you're actually letting yourself feel really sad in the moment and you're just bearing it. You're Mm. not necessarily sharing it with them, Mm. but I think that's a key that you're doing something right as a parent, instead of um, in those moments being reactionary as a parent in a way or covering those feelings up with, Mm anger or uh, not facing them or something, somehow sitting with those feelings can be one of the most painful things that you can do as a parent. But it's also, I think, excellent parenting. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> and I'm just wondering what dynamic is happening here and what you describe in you know, parents who are realizing that they have already lost their children. That must be for the reasons that you both were just saying of, you know, almost embarrassment or reflection, but also just painful, almost self-blaming. What did I do? You know, um, I mean, the most painful stuff, right? That's right. even behind the anger stuff. Yeah. And and I think what is the way out for a parent of that moment? What is the graceful way mm. Out and I think it's a very painful way out because it's like it requires you having a certain amount of humility. The mm-hmm. you know what we've all come to experience as parents with adult children now, which is f- finding our way through that transition from being the the authoritarian parent that tells right. them what to do to being almost like a you know you you still their parent for sure, but you're also interacting with them more as equals, and mm-hmm. you have to dial that part back. And so it's almost like a bunch of people who really need help through a really painful moment in parenting, you know, to start out with, and you can go two ways. You can let yourself start to feel grief and sadness over it and start to self reflect and how to you know, or you can dig in yep. <laughs> and it feels like. The, the latter road is being taken. Um, with these uh, parents at this conference, a lot of the private conversations that I had with them, there was a lot of uh, the need to just release control of adult kids because they don't, they will not allow you to control their lives. Exactly. Past a certain and age. And that's hard. It's hard, right? Even if you don't agree with their choices, but you can remain in relationships. So, we're not trying to do a parenting seminar here, but I do think <laughs> I, I, it's kind of developing. That's one cool thing about a human conversation. But I do think that there is that choice. Um, let's just say that at the political level, that energy mm-hmm. of 
despair and incomprehension at changes you don't like, especially if those changes are religio-moral, is easily mobilized for a certain kind of politics. Mm -hmm. All you need is to then have somebody say, oh, you know, I, I hear you're sad about your kid coming out or, or voting Democrat, of all things. Um, here's Charlie Kirk you could listen to online, or here's, um, here's this website, or here's, here's this book you could read. Um, there is an explanation. It's a plot. It's a plot of QAnon, or it's a plot of, of the demons, or it's a plot of the Democrats, or it's a plot of Biden, or it's a plot of the liberals, or it's the plot of the, the Hollywood people, or of the professors. Because it couldn't be us. It couldn't be us. It's not, it can't just be us. It's them. And we have to beat them. And, and we have to beat them by any means necessary. Well, a couple, many responses <laughs> in my head. I mean, one is... You said, I think, religio-moral, right? To me, even that sort of misses the real point, which is where I think you were going, which is to me it's about power. It's, it's about power. It's about policies that ultimately land power with sort of in the traditional structures where it's been and whether there's going to be shifts in that landscape. Because ultimately the goal of our democracy in theory, is equality, right? I mean, that's what de Tocqueville told us we like the most in this country above mm -hmm. anything else. And so the that's the natural growth of our democracy. It feels like the, the only way for folks that want the traditional power structures to remain in place to, to go strategically is to oppose democracy. If, yeah, I, I've I've been refining my thesis about this a little bit in in this way. Let's say let's say you have a reactionary cohort in the U.S. beginning, say, in the '60s. Okay, Christians, largely white, politically conservative, increasingly Republican. Once you have the, especially the Southern shift, the Southern strategy in the mm -hmm. late '60s. Um. I would say the idea of turning back the tides of cultural change has been there the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, and my experience in church and with church folks would be to say that I think there was a stage, uh, almost a, a pre-political stage of that, where, okay, we have to turn the tide of culture against feminism, liberalism. They didn't call it wokeism then, but, you know, it's the... You know, all these people who are not patriotic because they're protesting the Vietnam War, and it's the drug culture, and it's, it's the divorce, and it's all of that. Okay. We need to win the culture back for Christ through evangelism. And in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of that talk. Mm -hmm. And um, Jeremy, you would know that world. The world of tell everybody about Jesus. Right. You know, and tell your neighbors, have a list of your friends and make sure you, you, you preach the gospel to them at every opportunity. Yeah, uh, youth group homework assignments. Right. You, you know, I, in my, I, I was a born again Christian when I was 16 years old. I don't know how much of the story that you know, but it was I in my I memoir. I know it. I know it. Right. Yeah. And I had a, a woman. I had a King James version. <laughs> yes. I had a King James version Bible in which I had written the names of all the friends I was, or acquaintances at school that I was supposed to evangelize. There you, as you should have. It was the King James Bible. 
which God dictated, right? And and then it was all that. So I would say that by the late 70s, the visceral sense was that that strategy had failed. Because um, we were not able to convert all of our friends and cultural changes were not being reversed. Abortion, you had Roe v. Wade by then. You had, um, um, the divorce rate had doubled and wasn't going back down. Sexual revolution was not gonna be reversed. The country was becoming more uh, brown and black and more plural religiously. And, and there were a lot of people who were just not gonna believe in Jesus, no matter what she said. Okay. Uh, you met more people who were of other religions and no religion and, and all that. Okay. So then I think the second strategy was the Christian right strategy. It was the Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson. Moral get in, majority. Moral majority. Get in bed with the Republican Party. Get Ronald Reagan elected. Mm-hmm. And that'll do it. Get the, the judges appointed. Get, get the rhetoric from the White House that communicates our values. Reagan said, you can't endorse me, but I can endorse you. He said that to the National Association of Evangelicals. And, and so that was a strategy that was supposed to do it. You get a whole, you get a whole party to advance your agenda. But I would say that with the election of Barack Obama and also the ongoing development of cultural changes that were not wanted and Supreme Court decisions that were not liked, there was a sense on the part of of a lot of people that that democratic-oriented strategy, using the democratic process, had also not worked. And then I think Trump comes along, and he's, he starts by 2015, even before that, He's striking notes that had not been struck by a, a major political candidate since George Wallace. Mm-hmm. Out and out racism, xenophobia, um, authoritarian, beat him up at the rallies, you know, all of that stuff, right? Uh, the, the press is the enemy of the people. So he starts off doing that and he gets elected anyway. And then... And then the authoritarianism and, and the tendencies grow. And then after the election of 2020 that he loses and he can't accept the results, a whole new frontier is breached. And I think he helped to give permission to the, to, for the abandonment of democracy because so much is at stake. So what I'm proposing, tell me what you think about this. You kind of, the evangelism and discipleship strategy failed. The mainstream political process strategy was understood to have failed with a caveat now with this new Supreme Court asterisk, which we can talk about. And and then Trump comes along and says, what if we don't play within democratic rules anymore? Maybe that's the next step. What do you, th- is that, do you think that's a fair analysis? I do. I, 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 I don't have any problem with anything that you just said. I think it's accurate. I think, I, I really believe that if what you see is this is about power and maintaining traditional power structures in this country, and keeping power with white, traditional, sort of Christian, I would call it ultra-conservative Christianity right. from the world that, that I sit in, yeah. then democracy is too big a challenge for for your, your end goal. And that's why we saw January 6th. That's why we saw this effort to virtually topple our democracy. That's a pretty dramatic place to stop, but that's kind of the point, right? This uh, really good conversation will continue next Monday in the next episode, so stay tuned. As always, you can find David and I at our respective websites, davidpgushy.com and revjeremyhall.com. 
We're also very active on social media. You can find us on pretty much any platform you like. So reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We love questions. We love comments. And we look forward to having you back next week on the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Thanks for listening.